This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 459 for June 3rd, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Casper, The Great Courses, and Igloo. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm a senior contributor to Macworld, Glenn Fleischman, and someone obsessed with interfaces, as we'll get to later in this podcast. And I'm joined, as always, by Susie Oakes, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. It's nice to interface with you. Exactly. Yes, I, I'm compatible with all <laughs> operating systems. And how are you feeling? You feeling better? Uh, I'm still a little sick. All right. Well, we'll we won't we'll take it easy. My, I like to get sick before Big Apple events instead of after, <laughs> like everyone That's else. Good. I'm on the cutting edge of uh, mucus. Your immune system will be completely geared up for yep. WWDC next week. Yeah. Be great. And also joining us is Flo Ion, a staff writer at Greenbot. Hello, Flo. What's up, party people? Welcome to, welcome to the Thunderbolts. Yes. Uh, uh, you're being thrown into the mix. So Flo is a longtime Mac user and an adopter of the Android ecosystem. So yes. she's coming to An early adopter of the her, Android ecosystem. I was one of the first. 2009? Did you, you get the original, was it T-Mobile? Uh, no, because I'm on Verizon. So actually, let's, uh, to be fair, 2010, HTC Incredible. The 2009 phone was not so wonderful, I'll just no. say. The so I, I got in when it was, like, passable. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. I reviewed. I took the heat for that. I was writing for Ars Technica at the time, and I wrote a review as an iPhone user of the first Android phone. And oh, that was very, it was very entertaining. It was, very, <laughs> I was like, you know, copy and paste in 2009 would be great. But, okay, I guess not. It's come uh, a long way since then. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about we're gonna talk about the ebb and flow of things. Uh, we have a bunch of little news to talk about. There's uh, Some weeks there's giant news, and next week will be the Worldwide Developers Conference in lovely downtown San Francisco. Uh, and uh, some of us will be there, some of us will not. Some of us will be remotely covering it, and Apple will be announcing, as usual, a bunch of things with a developer spin, but looking to the global market to explain, you know, kind of its next move. So we'll hopefully hear about operating systems and maybe something about Apple TV and, and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, there's some news in the meantime before we find out what's going to be happening at WWDC. Uh, this morning, I wake up and uh, J Jason Snell texts me and says, hey, Thunderbolt 3. I'm like, what about the world? I'm sorry. What about Thunderbolt 3? <laughs> and uh, Intel has announced a new spec, a 40 gigabit per second Thunderbolt 3 specification. However, Susie, Music to my ears, USB-C, USB-C, USB-C. Yeah. So it's, it's one connector that that runs two different things? Is it kind of yeah. like how mini display port you can plug into a, an existing Thunderbolt? We have to get Gordon on the podcast to talk about It's not, not WWDC week, but I think we should have an interface. And seriously, because I think it's starting to get complicated. Uh, so USB-C is sort of a – it's funny because it's a physical standard for mm -hmm. a cable – uh, so it can carry up to 100 watts, depending on the cabling type. Uh, and it has a bunch of, uh, what do they call them? Not, ch not uh, channels. They're, uh, uh, I forgot there's a term for it in use, but it's like channels within the um, within the Series of tubes. Series of tubes. <laughs> and you can allocate them in different ways. So you can have a USB-C cable that can do USB uh, 3.1 generation one and two, just for confusing sake. Generation <laughs> one is like USB 3.0, it's five gigabits per second. Generation two is 10 gigabits per second, but you can also carry DisplayPort over it. And uh, there's other things to come apparently. So USB-C okay. is a really versatile spec. And 
uh, Intel has just adopted that spec and it's going to be backwards compatible. So they'll have a Thunderbolt 3 controller that will dynamically detect what's on either end. So if you plug in your USB-C to USB-C from Thunderbolt 3 to, say, the current generation 12-inch MacBook, um, it'll work at 5 gigabits per second using USB 3.1 generation 1. If you plug into another Thunderbolt uh, three device, you'll get 40 gigabits per second. You can drive uh, two 5K 60 hertz monitors from it. You'll get 10 gigabits per second Ethernet as kind of just thrown in there apparently. So it's going to be a, it's a new standard. That sounds great. It's uh, yeah, it should help unify. It's coming uh, later this year, I think, and uh, or early 2016. I forget. It's going to be rolling into places in 2016. But this seems to solve the conflict that people have. They're worried that this new connector would replace Thunderbolt on Macs, and it wasn't as good in a lot of people's estimation. Like it didn't have the same overhead, and especially people working with video or other kinds of high uh, bandwidth demand uh, kinds of industries and technology. We're worried. So this seems to this seems to answer a lot of that. Yeah, Intel's little graphic um, says that this will support Thunderbolt, DisplayPort, USB, and PCI Express. Oh, PCI so Express. That's oh, a man. lot for one little connector. That's awesome. It's great. Well, I think it just cements the idea that this is this is the new connector and the new standard. And being able to run, um, you know, I think when it came out, I thought all USB-C cables had to be certified to use uh, 100 watts uh, for charging. And that's not true. Apparently, there's, I think it's a 15 watt or there's a lower wattage version that some cables will do, which will affect you if you're trying to charge a laptop. And then other cables will have the full 100 watt. But for um, Intel's point of view, that lets you power multiple external hard drives uh, that previously you wouldn't have been able to with a US with or with a previous Thunderbolt. I don't think the power requirements were high enough um, for that either. Uh, now, in your bailiwick, Susie, HomeKit sounds like we're going to very, very, very soon see the fruits of that start to appear. Yes, it's June, and the devices are finally starting to ship, and the apps are being updated to add HomeKit support. Um, Caitlin right now is doing a slideshow because five devices were announced today. Um, the Insteon Hub is finally shipping. That was announced at CES, and that's finally for sale. It's $150. But that acts as a bridge to get all of the like hundreds of Insteon connected devices um, bridged to HomeKit. So you can use Insteon's app or any other HomeKit app, and you can have your Insteon things um, interfacing with um, your with any third-party home, you know, other companies' HomeKit compatible device. So um, iHome's Switch is out. Um, I did a video on that at CES. That is finally for sale today. So yeah, it's finally moving, and I would be shocked if we didn't hear some HomeKit stuff or see some products demoed at WWC on Monday, the keynotes on Monday. So yeah, I think that um, they're, they're going to talk about it. They're going to, if they preview iOS 9, um, there's a rumor that that will have kind of a home app, sort of like the Passbook uh. app or, you know, kind of an overarching home app. So, you know, I, I think they'll probably get some some devices up on stage and kind of show the developers how how that's all working because it was introduced at WWC last year. And then, you know, they didn't have any like actual things to demo, but they sort of explained how it's all going to work. But now they can really, really show us. So that's my prediction for, for next week is that we're going to see some HomeKit things because a lot of companies are finally taking the wraps off what they've got and making it available. 
and, and that's going to let us do things like uh, control our alarm systems, control our Wi-Fi, control the lighting, uh, get temperature sensors, have smart adjustment of our air conditioning when we are planning to come home, like yeah. all of these kinds of things. Door and window sensors, um, cameras, locks, um, lights, dimmable lights, um, on and off lights, um, connected plugs that you can plug in, you know, small appliances like fans. Um, ceiling fans, all, all kinds of things like that w- will all be able to, you, you can group them together in little scenes so you can say, show me everything in my living room and now I'm going to watch a movie so I want, you know, the lights dimmed and, you know, now I'm going to bed so I want to make sure the front door is locked and, and you know, turn all the cameras on and turn my thermostat down. And so, and you'll be able to do all that from Siri. Um, so you can do that from your phone without having to even open an app um, and then, so that's super convenient because before, you know, all the existing home gear works with iPhone, but you, a lot of times you're juggling, you know, different, every piece of gear comes with its own app. Oh, and, the apps are so terrible. I have yeah. an, an alarm app that works totally fine. They just updated it to support Touch ID, which was great. Um, but it's just, it's all kinds of awful. And I look yeah. at it and I'm like, I know there's an API under there where if it were, if it were, you know, written properly, this could be a great experience because there's all these sensors and things that are exposed, but I have to do this. It's just this ugly, terrible <laughs> approach because yeah. they're trying to invest, you know, they, nobody, I shouldn't say that nobody wants to invest money in app development in the sensor industry, but it's really not their specialty, you know, and this Apple lets them offload some of that to them, to their uh, their back end. Right. And we've seen that with fitness things too. Like the actual wristbands are getting kind of commoditized and the, the secret sauce is in the app. Like if you make a really good app, app that people want to use a lot, that's going to be the difference between a good fitness tracker and a bad fitness tracker. So with the home devices, the devices aren't really doing anything that they couldn't do before, but the software, the setup is going to be simpler, the security is going to be, you know, all handled kind of behind the scenes. And this way, HomeKit kind of lets the companies focus on what they do really, really well. So August makes smart locks. And they make an app for it, but if you don't want to use August app, you can go to another company's HomeKit app and still control your August lock. So the companies can kind of specialize. Like if you're a really great software company, you could just make an app. Like you don't have to make any devices at all. Oh, and I love this because I've seen this with um, HealthKit, even though it's I think still pretty immature. Where uh, I had you know I have a Withing scale Wi-Fi connected scale. Mm-hmm. I've got a Fitbit, and then I got the watch, and I've got my phone. And uh, it took me a little bit actually. So I had a Actually ask on Twitter, say like, all right, where do I access? What do I? And uh, now I have it all integrated. So I've got a Withings app, which is actually okay, but I think the uh, HealthKit approach is is better. And yeah. so now all that data is being fed into HealthKit, and I have, uh, and I'm thinking, gosh, when that when HomeKit catches up with what with that, that's fantastic because I can, as you say, I can still use the individual apps if I need to, but if I want to do comprehensive stuff or one app might be able to talk to, as you say, another app to or another um, a set of devices, I don't have to use. Uh, uh, the, the only that app developed by one company. Yeah, so you'll be great. able to use whichever app you like the best, like whichever like app that. just fits with what you like to do. Or if you don't want to use an app, you'll be able to use Siri. Um, if you have an Apple Watch, you'll be able to control things from your watch. And this new Apple TV hardware, if they put Siri in it, maybe you'll be able to just kind of like shout out commands to your house, <laughs> like, you know, people who have that Amazon Echo, and you'll just say something and 
ahoy telephone and she'll listen and and you'll be <laughs> able tele- to engage to, panic mode and right, then all the metal I mean, shutters like, come crashing down and yeah because smart home things are cool in, in what they can do but sometimes they're more cumbersome too like everyone knows how to turn on a light switch you know but having to to dig out your phone unlock it find an app open an app and then turn on a light switch you just added six more steps to something that we've all been doing you know for decades so so it's it's important. Like I think that deep iOS integration and Siri control is going to be the game changer because it's going to make things that should have been simple all along. It's going to kind of re-simplify them. Just wait until your home lighting crashes and you have to reboot it somehow. Yeah, I know, right? I had so much trouble part. with my Apple TV last night. I'm like, I'm oh. not ready. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about that in a moment. I want to take a quick break and thank one of our first sponsors, and we'll come back with more news and then talk about Google I/O and uh, what Apple should steal from Google <laughs> this time around. I want to thank uh, Casper. Plenty. One of our <laughs> one of our sponsors this week is Casper mattresses. This is an obsessively engineered American-made mattress that's available at a shockingly fair price and you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase you make by going to casper.com slash Macworld. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash Macworld and use the code Macworld. So what Casper did is they brought together two different comfortable technologies to give you better nights and brighter days, latex foam and memory foam. So you've got just the right amount of sync and just the right amount of bounce no matter how you sleep. Here's the great part, and this is, I think, a very entertaining thing. You can find videos of this online. Uh, they ship it to you, right? They ship a mattress to you in a box, and you open it up, and it sort of it doesn't inflate. It just sort of unfolds because it's foam, right? But the best part here is that you can try this mattress shipped to your home for 100 days. If you don't like it, they pick it up. It's a risk-free trial, a risk-free return. Uh, now, in terms of pricing, they're very competitive, uh, especially for an American-made product. This is something that's you know domestic and shipped domestically. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress. You should go into any uh, department store or mattress store and try to compare and find what you can get for that price, and you'll see it's a highly competitive offer. Uh, and again, it comes right to you. You do not have to figure out how to tie ropes on top of your car or carry a mattress through the New York City subway system. You can actually get it delivered to your home and then watch the excitement as it unfolds and becomes a full-size thing. Like those sponges, you know, you add water and they expand. It's a little bit like that. So get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash Macworld, C-A-S-P-E-R.com and use the code Macworld. Terms and conditions may apply. Thanks to Casper for being one of our sponsors this week. And uh, Susie, there was another issue. Uh, we were talking about uh, HealthKit for a moment. Apple clarified something about how it captures your heartbeat, which captured some people's attention because uh, it seemed to be a slightly funny clarification. Uh, how comfortable are you with what Apple <laughs> Apple said about that? What did they say? They, if you're in motion, <laughs> it's not going to capture your heartbeat. Well, if, you're, uh, if, if you have the workout app, if you're doing right. a workout and you're in motion, it still counts that, right? Is this just the activity app that they're talking about? I think that's the thing, but it confused people because, so that means, I, I, f- I find this whole modality a little confusing. We talked about it a couple podcast episodes ago with Caitlin McGarry. Uh, the fact that you have to kind of invoke a workout mode because that's a higher battery usage mode. Clearly, it's monitoring you more closely, but you yeah, engage Yeah, it's using the green mode. lights instead of the red lights or whatever. Yeah, so it's enga- right, and it gauges in that. And if you're in regular, just normal, everyday usage mode, uh, it's going to usually, it's going to try 
try to use the infrared lights if it can. If it can, it'll switch to green. But it's infrared must be lower power. I don't know. There must be some. There's yeah. there's a bunch of things it's doing in a normal mode that are sort of background and intermittent. And so now they're saying, look, we may not be capturing your heartbeat all the time if you're walking. But if I'm walking and I'm not in workout, so I. I think I'm hoping a future release will maybe dingle your wrist and say, it looks like you're having activity. Would you like to track this with workout? And it looks like you've stopped your activity. Would you like to end your workout? That could, uh, you know, or, or you're in your cool down period. Should we end this in 10 minutes? That kind of thing would be helpful. So I don't have to have, um, I don't have to switch my mode, right? Yeah. I mean, I pick up plenty of exercise minutes just walking around. So... I do workouts on my stationary bike and I actually track those as workouts because I want to make sure that, you know, it's getting my heart rate and it's seeing that I'm exercising and I'm closing that green circle. I'm obsessed. Um, but then if when I take the bus to work, it drops me off five or six blocks away and I walk, you know, pretty fast and hauling through Soma with my backpack on. And when I get to work, I've got like 15 minutes of, of exercise minutes just from that walk. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know if it's, if it's like the quick motion kind of triggers it that, okay, like she's, you know, swinging her arms like rhythmically, like she's walking, maybe I should check in on her heart rate and see if these are exercise minutes or just, you know, active calories for the movering or both. Um, yeah, I would love more uh, clarification on that. And Apple likes to keep things a little mysterious. And I feel like with just with the health tracking features that that's not the right um, idea, that they should be really, really clear because, yeah, people are trying to figure it out. And, um, I, you know, I don't need it to, to check my heartbeat every time I'm in motion. Um, but, yeah, it's people really want to know kind of what the difference is. Well, it's fun too. If you go back and you dig into a uh, health kit into the, uh, to the health app, rather, uh, I wanted to know, I'm like, okay, it's tracking my heartbeat. Where do I find it? I'm like, Oh, I can add it to the dashboard. And I'm looking at this, you know, now multi-week record of day by day with 10 minute interval slices, typically, uh, when I'm wearing it of my heartbeat, which is fascinating information. I think, gosh, that's going to be really like, it, there's so much that can be done with that they sent to your doctor if you have a health condition uh, just for your own personal use to see how you trend over time if you're engaged in exercise just that background you'll find your resting rate um, so it's I'm I'm really excited about that which is why I was like all right you know let's know more about what you're doing because this is this is very useful uh, another another news item we have um, so flow how do you watch what older people like me call television. How do you, how do you watch programming of a visual nature at home? Uh, there are, I have several setups in my house, actually. Uh, downstairs, we have a Roku. So we use the Roku downstairs. And then upstairs, I have a Chromecast. Mm. Yeah. P people love, um, love the Chromecast. I know it has some limitations, yes. but very, it, it, do you Chromecast have the, the, is awesome. Is that the stick that plugs into an HDMI port, that one? or Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. I actually have an old, uh, back in my PC days, which I have since banned to the closet because I have no room for it whatsoever. Um, I took the 32-inch monitor that I had and I just turned it into a TV for the guest room. And so I just plugged in the Chromecast into the available HDMI port and that's... It's like in the guest room. So, you know, if I want some alone time, I could just go in there and, and watch TV, you know, and just be left alone with my Chromecast. <laughs> but we're about to get another option, as you know, or rumors were another option. And uh, it came out this week that because uh, you'll need to get your Apple TV, of course, will be the next thing. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like we should wait. Those of us who are not, and you can buy your, you know, the current generation one was dropped to $69 after uh, HBO 
Go. HBO Go? HBO Now. HBO Now. Now go! Uh, Go now! (laughs) That sounds like a line from Game of Thrones. Go now! Uh, With this announced. So the price was dropped, and so we expect a new unit to ship, and uh, the previous thought and rumors were WWDC would be where all this would be announced, maybe an Apple TV SDK for apps and a new subscription service. Now it seems like uh, it's unclear what will be announced, that maybe the subscription TV part, uh, just as other companies have found, it takes a long time to negotiate with television networks and other programming sources, uh, so maybe that won't be announced next week. Yeah, they can go ahead and announce the music service, even if all the labels aren't on board, because, you know, you'll get some music, but not all. But I guess the the story with the TV is, according to Recode, that if they want to have some local programming in there, and that's a whole different ball of negotiations, so they can get you know, national programming by, you know, from CBS or whatever. But if they want your local news that's on your CBS affiliate, they have to get that from the affiliates. So, so they don't want to, I guess, you know, they might want to just save the whole thing until they have all those pieces in place. And it's not quite like, okay, we can launch the music service with like these four labels and, and the labels that aren't on board yet will just come on board when they do. Um, but this, it's, it'd be like adding a second category of local programming to this, to this TV package. And they think that that's going to really, um, that's what's going to set it apart because Sling TV and, and um, all the you know, TV everywhere kind of apps that are out there now, those are just national things. You can't really watch your local programming, streaming. So, so Apple's trying to kind of blaze a trail there and it's, it's taking a while. It's a fascinating thing, the TV market, because uh, because I think it's a 1996 law. I think it's the telecom. I forgot if that's the one. But uh, local stations have these two complementary rights. One is they can demand to be on a local uh, – anybody who sort of meets the franchise requirements or is a local provider of television services, they can demand to be on it. And the other is they can refuse to be on it unless fees are paid. So uh, originally it was stations didn't want to lose their advertising revenue, so they wanted to be able to demand to be on. Then when networks really – or the cable companies and others wanted the station. They're like, great, here's our terms and you have to pay them uh, or you're not covering us, which is why you get these disputes like the Time Warner thing blacking out and so forth. Uh, so uh, there, there's billions of dollars paid each year now in these rights to carry local programming or local stations, uh, even as advertising rates have gone down. So Apple um, would be a new source because they're not going to be a franchise uh, company where they have to get approval from local um television providing uh, entities, uh, government bodies in each. America's weird. America's weird. <laughs> There's like, I think it's 5,000 franchise entities, and maybe that's dropped. Um, I think the state of Texas turned itself into one. Seattle just changed what it did so that any entrant in Seattle now doesn't have to apply to one of like eight districts. They can apply to the whole city. It's But it was to prevent redlining. It was to prevent only offering certain services in certain parts of town. And uh, so there were these requirements to provide universal services across a fran- franchise area, which was great. And But everything's changed. And um, so Apple getting into this will be interesting because it'll be yet another way to get local programming without having to deal with uh, cable or uh, telecom directly, only indirectly because of our broadband requirements. Uh, so this is this is another kind of <clears> – <throat> this is sort of news, like non-news news is um, talking to various people who are not Apple people online. They're not like tech reporters or, or you know, big Apple people. They're like, why is no one talking about the watch anymore? <laughs> and I've heard that. No, I've heard this from a bunch of people. Like it's in the it's in the news. I'm like, they're like, I don't. They're, you know, this one fellow I know in Hollywood. Uh, he's a, a show writer, and he's like, I don't. I've seen a couple of them, but I don't see people talking about them, asking about it. And my thought is, gosh, it seems like 
maybe until you can go in a store and buy one, until Apple kind of ramps up production more? Like, is it a sales issue or is it the fact that you had to be really committed to get one? So it was sort of a, it was a diehard crew who bought the initial ones. Um, and now people are still waiting for delivery. But the news that came out was, uh, was ostensibly, this wasn't from Apple, but ostensibly we may be able to walk into an Apple store and uh, you could reserve a watch, walk in and purchase one in person soon. Do you think that'll make a difference to how people, uh, you know, outside of our community perceive the watch, uh, the watch's role or, or importance? Can I add yes to this? Sorry <laughs> to interrupt. Yeah, Can I just add it. yes to this? Because that's exactly how my mom and dad shop for things. Like my dad goes to the Verizon store when it's time for his upgrade. And he's like, let's walk around and see which phone I would like in my pocket the best, you know, and that's how like he picks his phone. He doesn't go online like me and just pick out whatever he wants and read the font. That's a smart way to pick a phone. And my mom is the same way, which is why she chose the Galaxy S6 and why she's now making me feel bad for telling her to buy an Android phone. But anyway, (laughs) but that's how my that's how my dad (laughs) that's how my dad's gonna get an Apple Watch because I know he's gonna go to the Apple Store just like on one of his days. He's at the mall because he still goes to the mall, and he's gonna be like, "Oh man, this looks so good on me. I'm gonna buy it." Like. And then he's just going to buy it impulsively because that's how he shops. And I think, like, techies, we all hang out with each other. So we all know what's on our wrists already. But, like, regular people, like my mom and dad, they still rely on the brick and mortar, you know, the experience of, like, going in, feeling something, seeing it, you know, with the spotlights on it and, like, being, you know, sold on it by the employee at the store, like, you should get this. It will fulfill you. Well, walking out with it, right? It's like, yeah. you know, the, the fitting appointments oh, it's are interesting. amazing. I, like, I miss that feeling of going to a store and buying electronics. <laughs> like, I, I don't get, I don't have that anymore. And I, it's, even when I just, like, I bought my Galaxy S6 recently, um, I was so excited about ordering it online because that was, like, the first time I had ordered a phone in three years. It's like, oh, man, I'm getting a new phone in the mail. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, but I mean, the fitting appointments are fun, but right. If you can't, uh, you're like, all right, I love this watch. Can I get it? It's like, yes, let me help you order it online and you'll have it in six to eight weeks. That's like, that's why a lot of people don't buy like high fashion clothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause it's, it's, it's reserved for a specific like subset of people who really want that. Like, this is very exclusive, but for the every man who can afford the high fashion stuff, they don't want to, they don't gravitate toward it. Cause it's just like, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, you you have a lot of chances to kind of talk yourself out of it. You know, you can look at it, you can try it on, you can be like, yeah, I really want this. And you can kind of play with it. But then, and they can help you place an order right there. But usually, you know, you you would go home and think about it and place an order online or with your phone or something. So you sort of have a lot more chances to to walk away. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be, I think maybe more people will buy... yeah, they, they say that they're making, they're selling everything that they make, and that's why it's not in the store yet because it just demand can't keep up. And so I don't know if it'll be a spike and that you're going to see a lot more, but if there's more out there to buy, maybe you'll see more around. I haven't seen that many around. They're not the carriers yet, are they? No, the carriers aren't selling them at all. Yeah, that's where people buy their iPhones. You know, that's that's where people go when they're ready to upgrade. Like they're not going to go to the Apple store, especially because not everybody has one. Well, it's like an iPad problem too. Is like unless you try it on an iPad, you know, when you if you're new to it, would you buy one uh, sight unseen? Well, yeah, if you kind of trust Apple as a company and you, whatever, and then once they're available widely, you can go to story. Oh, I like this. I'll buy it. I walk out, and it's no longer a hard sell. But I, I really do think. I mean, especially when you looked at how quickly 
things were back ordered. You had to get up at midnight Pacific or 3 a.m. Eastern to place orders and they were all gone and, uh, or almost all of them gone really fast. So who does that? It's people like us do that. Yeah. And so I, ha- I have to say know. the only reason my parents have iPads is because of the carriers because Verizon huh. sold them like, oh, yeah. Hey, we'll give you these two iPads for like 200 bucks. If you sign up for a data plan onto your massive family plan that we already have because yes. every Romanian is on it ever. Um, <laughs> so do they put the entire country on their one plan? Is, well, uh-huh. you know, you know, I mean, uh, it's lots of savings, but yeah, that's, and now my dad is totally into the Apple ecosystem, like formerly a super PC guy. Verizon is the reason he's into the Apple wow. ecosystem now. Yeah, because cool. they just gave him all these deals, and they were like, "Yeah, we'll just like toss this in for you, man." And he's like, "Yeah, let's do it." Oh, AT&T yeah, it was could be a really effective, you know, packaging. Like there could be a buy an iPhone and an Apple Watch together and save this. But you know, maybe we'll see that like next year. I think it it might still be too new, and if you know, they can kind of say like, "Oh, we can't make enough to do special things like that." But maybe they'll they'll start being available in carrier stores eventually. I, uh, right now, it's like Apple Store, and there's a few kind of high end department stores that have them, but that's it. The AT&T full court pressed me in a very nice way. We went in to do, I don't know, swap something for um, my wife. We were, oh, we were swapping, getting giving her my older phone and doing a SIM swap. And a uh, great salesperson is very low key. He's like, you know, we have this amazing, you've got a Verizon iPad? Oh, well, is it on Verizon? No. Oh, well, you know, we can add it to your plan with 50% off. you got to do it in the next three days. Just come by. And it'll, I was like, oh, wow. And then I realized... I don't need my iPad on three on a network on a on a cellular. <laughs> she almost talked me into. I'm like, I just use uh, I just use tethering. I don't actually I know, carry me too, it separately. Right? <laughs> but she almost it was like, oh, that's a great deal. It's fifty percent off. How nice. Oh, ten dollars a month. I like that. Oh, all right. So let's uh, let's we have we have Google I/O to get to. So I want to uh, let's let's we have a couple other news items that I think are uh, will be of interest to listeners. So we'll move on. Is uh, one it falls into uh, my security areas. There's uh, uh, reportedly a firmware hack. For older Macs, and it's a little obscure. There's some good coverage. Go to macworld.com, and you can read uh, some of the the news reporting on that. And uh, I may write about that. I'm still trying to figure out if it's a story or not. Is a uh, security researcher discovered that during a, uh, a wake from, if you wake a Mac from sleep, there's uh, a potentially a window in Macs made before some point in 2014 where the boot firmware, the EFI, uh, the extensible firmware. Uh, infrastructure, I don't know what it's called. It's something like that. What it stands for, uh, this is Apple's, it's, well, it's the BIOS for uh, for Apple systems and something Intel, I think, developed originally. Uh, the EFI controls what, you know, what happens during the startup phase of a uh, computer before the operating system launches. So this, the firmware is usually locked down in a way that it can't be modified without um, access to, you know, like digital signatures and other stuff. So, you, so it's safe. And this researcher found this brief moment when it's on, or brief, a uh, period of, I shouldn't say brief, sorry, it's found a, uh, a flaw in which in a certain mode after waking from sleep, it's unlocked if you know how to access it. And it, it's very obscure. He didn't use proper disclosure. He just posted a blog entry about it without reporting it to Apple. And uh, then it's like, oh, is this a big deal? Okay. And uh, it hasn't been confirmed by Apple. I have a request for comment into them. And, and Apple usually doesn't either comment at all or they don't comment until something's fixed. Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not like it affects older operating systems. It only affects uh, ostensibly, if his re- if his research is correct, Macs that are a year or more old, because uh, Apple apparently changed this process, and so it's not exploitable in newer Macs. So he's wondering if they figured it out and decided not to release firmware patches or something. So a lot of speculation. I think um, I, I don't know if this is actually something that will be easy to exploit. Uh, he suggests that. 
the path would be you could have malware at a website, uh, you know, exploiting a flaw in Safari. Someone visits the site, it downloads malware, which then affects the, you know, installs and watches for fur. And I'm like, this seems like an awfully long sequence of things to attack old Macs or older Macs. So I don't know. I don't feel, I feel like it may be all plausible that it's accurate as an exploit, but I wonder if it's actually going to turn into something that anybody except maybe a government trying to target a specific individual would ever use. Seems a little bit out there. I don't yeah. know. You guys aren't. You guys aren't worried about it, clearly. Nope. <laughs> Nor you should be. I mean, it's one thing. It's you like, always uh, tell me what I have to worry about. I don't. I don't pay attention to security anymore. You know, if there's something, if there's something big, Glenn will let me know. I'll send off my own. Well, we talked about Net, uh, Net USB. Uh, was it last week? Uh, you know, a different uh, research company it did all the things. They disclosed months ahead of time to companies. Some companies put out patches. Some chose not to. And there's the potential that this software and a bunch of routers, where um, if you plug, they have USB ports. Like you know, Apple's equipment has it, but uses its own software. But there's one software module. You use this USB port um, on a router, and it makes it available to computers, including Macs, on a network. And there's a, a flaw. These researchers found a flaw in that which could be remotely exploited because uh, the router may, in some cases, open a port to the outside world. So someone could scan the world for open ports in this area and then, you know, insert, uh, you know, malware and so forth. So there is the potential for exploiting. This one seems a lot, this firmware hack seems a lot more off to the side. Um, and speaking of older Macs, I think our last news story uh, – Warmed my heart, sort of, like, from two directions, so... Yeah, this is nice. Yeah, so Recycling Center, Computer Recycling Center, got a donation. A woman was apparently clearing out her husband's, uh, late husband's collection of um, dead machines, <laughs> which I've been very meticulously putting my stuff in computer recycling, so when I, long, far in the future, hundreds of years in the future, when I'm gone... My descendants will not have to clear this out. But so she dropped it all off and they go through it and they find that one of the machines she left was an original, one of the first 200 uh, Apple Ones ever made, yep. kind of hand built in the garage. The wooden Apple. Apple One. Oh my God. I've never seen one in person. I haven't gone, I tend to go to a computer history museum to see it. I uh, started using Macs after when they were not quite as... Um, limited edition. So they actually sold it for <laughs> sold it for two hundred thousand dollars, which is great. And their policy is they split the proceeds of stuff that's that valuable with the people who donate it, but they can't find her. They know she drove up an SUV, she didn't want a receipt and disappeared. So there's a uh, search on the way to find this woman to give her a hundred thousand dollar check. So it's kind of <laughs> I'll kind take of it. I know if, if nobody she doesn't else, want but... it, I'll take her check. <laughs> yeah. It's, I sort of hope that they don't find her because then they'll, you know, they'll just be able to keep that and use it for, for more stuff. Well, let's take a quick break to thank one of our other sponsors this week, Igloo, before we get on to the Google I.O. discussion. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work. You can share files, post blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use, and it's easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. Igloo is built using responsive design. That means that everything you can do at your desk, you can do on the go, on a phone or tablet. The responsive design allows the internet to look great on everything you use. You don't have to be in a specific place or a specific device to get the most out of what you're doing. So whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or you're a fast-growing business that's overwhelmed by apps, you can create an internet that matches your brand's look and feel, that simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Now, you can get a free trial if you go to igloosoftware.com slash macworld. That's I-G-L-O-O -O, software.com slash macworld. You 
can sign up there and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers to try it out with you. An intranet can be a powerful tool for collaboration and for keeping everything in one place, and Igloo makes it easy. So visit igloosoftware.com slash Macworld for your free trial and let them know Macworld sent you. And thanks to Igloo for being one of our sponsors this week. Uh, and now here's something else with an I and an O in it, just like Igloo. Like that. And also, like, Flow Ion, your, this, design, this event was designed for you. So, Flow, Google I.O. was last week, and uh, you were there night and yes, day singing karaoke and talking into wrists and, and painting fabric and uh, looming things and secure. Wow, well, no. So, staring into little tiny cardboard boxes. Sorry, the cardboard box revolutions. Which almost made me barf. Me too. I hate that thing. Oh, no. Do you guys have cardboard aversion? Well, Apparently, okay, so I found out very quickly from Hayden Dingman, who does our uh, games coverage for PC World, he said that the car- Google Cardboard, the phones run at 60 hertz, and that's why they're, like, apparently your brain can't handle that, and so that's why I didn't get sick when I used the HTC Vive, because that runs at, like, 90 hertz, because it's more powerful or whatever. Oh, 60 is too, uh, that's not a fast enough refresh for this? Uh, uh, yeah, wow. something, something like that, and also... Then I got a bunch of pitches after I wrote that article um, about how women are more susceptible yes. to nausea. Really? And I'm like, yes. yeah. There was a study. Jason kept telling me about it, Jason Cross. There was a study some um, researcher noticed that, you know, she was getting sick from these virtual reality um you know, displays and her male colleagues were not. And they figured out that there was something like with the shading that women's brains actually use different. Yeah. Like we, we see things differently and the, you know, to, to tell the distance from something women rely more on shading than just on the size of the object, like how far away it is from you. And yeah, and once once they made some like subtle adjustments and how they were rendering the graphics, they were really able to make women Whoa. less nauseous when looking at them. Oh, but talk it's about like it's probably mostly bias. dudes like making these things. Yeah, and like Jeez. they don't know, like they only know how their brains work. Well, so remember when iOS seven came out with the parallax feature? Um, oh, one, hey. My <laughs> friend uh, Jenny Leader wrote a, a blog entry. She's a um, design a, a UI UX designer, and uh, her entry got massive coverage because she articulated exactly what was going on. She was getting nauseated by. The parallax and then Apple very quickly added, I think within just a few weeks, they added essentially like turn off nauseating features. Yeah, <laughs> so it you was could... Dana Boyd who found it. Oh, yes, okay, right, yeah. And, that... re- and then there's a really good article called Is Oculus Rift Sexist? And I'm gonna wow. put it in the show notes. I had no idea that, that is that is like the definition of unconscious. Well, bias. And I've always gotten really car sick, so um, cardboard, me I too. Mean, yeah, like any of that oh, is suspect to me. Don't high five like, each other, you might get. <laughs> Yeah. Whoa. So I I hated the parallax thing. I didn't like it on my Fire Phone either. Um, all the 3D stuff it was doing. Um, I can't read on the bus. So I, they're they're kind of jokingly around the office calling me like the litmus test for virtual reality. Like we know if they've got it really good if Susie doesn't want to barf. Because I looked at Google Cardboard on Friday for. Um, like five minutes because they put out an iOS app for it. So I put my iPhone into the little Google Cardboard viewer and and looked at it and it was terrible. I hated it. And um, they said that the the iPhone screen is, you know, not even up to par on some of the Android phone screens that are using, um, you know, that are better for cardboard. So it wasn't surprising that I hated it so much, but I really, really hated it. And it's not even like full, it's not even full VR. So it's not like, yeah. 
I, I realize this is delving into a VR conversation, but it's just a still image that's 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. And just that, for some reason, hurts me so badly. <laughs> more more than like the HTC Vive, which was this really interactive experience where um, the thing that that uh, sort of got me there is that I was in a different world. And yeah. that's that's where my brain was processing. Like, you're in a different world that's unlike yours. Yeah. So that was the issue there. But for cardboard, it was, I'm starting to get a migraine. Yeah. Now my stomach is hurting. I need to stop for a second. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. You know, it's so it's stereoscopic 360 degree, not uh-huh. motion. But so you get the sense of motion though. And I think there's that issue, especially if it's telling you to turn, like movement, oh, the yeah. tracking <laughs> is the thing that get, I'm saying this out loud. I'm making everybody, uh, uh, yeah, this will be the, the podcast of the damned. Like, no, get me off this ship. Um, well, let's, let's, let's move on while our stomachs remain intact. Uh, I think, but that is, that is fascinating. So, um, Android Wear is obviously a lot of attention focused on it because, uh, 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 Google has had a much longer history with making, uh, you know, wearable technology and they had a bunch of interesting stuff at, at this event. I mean, the Apple's first four is hits, to watch. Some misses. Yeah. The project, <laughs> Jaca- project Jacquard is one, is a Jacquard. Very, I'm very interested in that. Um, but, uh, but also there are, there's a lot of more general, uh, uh, Android Wear issues. So what, what came out of this, uh, about Android Wear, Wear this time around? Okay, so Android Wear, actually, all the stuff that was announced at I.O. was not new. That stuff was announced back in late April. Um, and you can go to greenbot.com and read all about right it on. because we, uh, yeah, we've, we've already tested it out. I already have it on the LG Urbane, which is the first Android Wear watch to get uh, Android Wear 5.1. Well, all the new, like, Wi-Fi features and emoji so, but we still, yeah, we don't have confirmation whether or not um, the cross-platform compatibility is happening soon. That was the thing we were sort of hoping would happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they're going to bring Android Wear, uh, Android Wear app to iOS, maybe they're, they're thinking about, so iPhone users could get an Android Wear watch. This is this will join the Microsoft bringing everything to iOS and Apple, too. It's, in, it's interesting how all these closed ecosystems, like Apple still gets to retain its because it has a lucrative audience. Um, so and Android owns the world, uh, I, I think is the thing. Android, Android is one in market share. But um, but they still want to break into where the where the high spending folks are, right? Because on average, if you if you're selling a billion devices, you're going to sell to people of a much broader socioeconomic uh, background, including on the lower end where they've where it's very inexpensive. But uh, Apple's captured a good hunk of the high end, and that's that's a fascinating thing. It, how does um, this Project Jacquard? Is that uh, the, you know this is named after the Jacquard looms that inspired IBM's mm-hmm. punch cards? I love that stuff. And uh, uh, but so Project Jacquard is that a, is that a serious thing? Was that kind of a pie in the sky? Is is that an Android Wear ecosystem thing or something totally out there? No. So I I got a full hands-on with this uh, BT Dubs, and I actually interviewed one of the lead uh, designers on it, and I got to very quickly talk to um, the lead on it. Uh, His name is Ivan. I forget how to pronounce his last name, and I don't want to butcher it. (laughs) Uh, But he was actually wearing the jacket, and I caught him for a brief second on the show floor after the uh, the ATAP keynote, which is uh, Google's division, Advanced Technology and Projects. And that's where they do all the like future-facing stuff. So the modular smartphone kind of comes out of that, Project Dara. So uh, I, I, he was wearing the jacket on the show floor, and I very briefly talked to him before he was snagged away <laughs> by PR. And I asked him, I was like, 
are you sweating really badly in that right now? And he was like, no, no, no. It's just like any other, any other jacket. Like, you know, just to tell me that it just feels like anything else. So we and should maybe the, explain to people what Project Jacquard is. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, so I'm Project so excited Jacquard, about it, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. Project, <laughs> this is how I write my articles, by the way. Uh, Project Jacquard is, um, it's conductive thread. So they like weave regular thread and conductive thread and create like a trackpad of sorts in the clothing that you're wearing, which is which is kind of cool, just like future facing technology. But cool. the but the actual like implementation of it, I'm still struggling to think of like, do I really want to control light bulbs with my sleeve? Like is that, you know, really what well, and your hands on, I thought it was really, um, I thought it was really funny how you said that you weren't really sure like w- w- which way was up at all, you oh, know, yeah. like when you wear something. No, it was super, it was super confusing. Like, am I swiping so, like, up? Am I swiping down? Like, yeah. how do I hold my arm? Like, where do I put my hands? You put your left foot exactly. in and then you put your left foot out this, this turns and then the you whole, put your left foot in and you shake it all about. This turns your clothing into a theremin, I think. It's like, yes, it's woo, like you're woo, wearing And it works nothing like the MacBook trackpad. So I I went into it thinking like, all right, I'm a pretty seasoned, you know, uh, trackpad user. Like, let's see what I can do here. I had no freaking idea what I was doing. All I know is that I was touching it. Stuff was happening. But I didn't really know how to make stuff happen, like, in control, you know. I just had this sensation. I was at the robotics conference in Seattle, ICRA. uh, It's an academic event. And I got to try this thing where they wire to connect into a robot. And you can get the robot to, like, uh, pick up a basketball and so forth or a small basketball. And... I, it was the weirdest thing because I'm I'm looking at the robot, but I'm mapping my motions like I'm in front of a connect, and it was the the sensation you described. Like I don't know, like I you have to do it in reverse. It's mirror image, which is strange enough, but up and down are still the same. Left and right are reversed, uh, and uh, I I never did get the get it to pick up the basketball. Yeah, but it was a very I can't even situation. use a graphics pad as a mouse. Like that's <laughs> too much for my brain to 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 adjust to. So. I do love the idea though because I think that like woven clothing seems like a really I mean woven. Um, a technology into clothing seems like it will be the future. Possibly. They're, they were talking about different scenarios. They could bring this to like the medical industry or like you could put this in your car to control things. Um, but I do want to segue. So you had originally asked, you know, how is this related to Android yeah. Wear? So um, Project Jacquard is not related to Android Wear. What may be related to Android Wear is Project Soli. And that's another thing that's coming out of Google's ATAP division. So Project Soli, and I'm going to explain this in super layman's like terms. I'm not going to go technical here. But it's basically a sensor that can read um, your fingers and what you're doing with your fingers to control the interface. So for instance, when I'm rubbing mm. like my, my index and thumb finger together, it's registering that and it's scrolling up and down in the interface. Oh. And I had originally tweeted, like, eat your heart out, Apple. Sorry, everyone. Uh, because, okay. you know, this this <laughs> this negates the need for any hardware buttons on a wearable product, on like a watch. Yeah. All you'd have to do to scroll through is just like, okay, I'm just going to use my fingers to scroll through here, you know, or like touch it if I want, mm-hmm. if I don't want to like scroll up and down. Um, and so that is... That just was an interesting thing. Super beta, super not, like, no real example of how it would work, but really fascinating. That's the fun thing about I.O. I like how they'll just tell you what they're working on. That's that's something I just love about Google. They're like, we have a lot of nerdy projects that might never 
be anything, but they might be something really cool, and we're just not sure yet. But here, check them out. Apple would never do that. It doesn't freak out the markets as much when Google talks about the future. It seems to excite them. Um, where with Apple, when it talks, whenever it slips something about the future, everybody freaks out about what it might mean. Yeah. I do want to note that this was a completely separate presentation from the I.O. keynote, which happened on day one. Yeah, let's um, talk about what happened in the keynote and what Apple should steal. <laughs> <laughs> well, so just just to to let all the Apple users out there know, <laughs> you know, uh, Sundar Pichai led the keynote on Thursday. And Sundar is head of, like, the Chrome and Android divisions. Um, so when we had the keynote, we were very much talking about what's happening in the present so, like, these are the things you can look forward to in the next, like, six to eight months. And then the next day was a more uh, under-advertised presentation from Google's ATAP division, which is basically, like, a bunch of secret buildings in behind the buildings in Mountain View uh, where they work on secret projects mm. that, you know, you have to have special access to get into. Yeah. So... But yeah, I think I heard a lot of buzz from uh, from the keynote about, you know, the Apple certainly, uh, in the past, uh, Android had features Apple seemed to like, like notifications and so forth. And, Copy and paste. You know, or even, you know, <laughs> Apple Pay. It's uh, every When Apple Pay came out, all of my Android friends, especially my NFC-loving friends, were like, Google's had, what you, Google's had this for a long time. It's like, yeah, but Google didn't sign the deals and Google did all the pain and Google had to deal with the cellular carriers who didn't want to adopt um, the payment system. And Apple... Apple just, you know, they they Ugh, they leveraged yeah. they leveraged all of Google's pains to leapfrog. Google's Achilles heel is the carriers, by the way. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who have like kept Android back a lot. And that's the whole problem with having like an open system like this. Mm -hmm. Is that oh it's it's just it makes me so upset. But so the <laughs> so the keynote had a lot cry. of it wasn't catch up, but it was like there's a lot of features where like, okay, yeah, Apple has the Apple oh, that's an iOS that's but it's not in some ways like it's not so much uh, Google stole from Apple as uh, you know, there's a mutual no. this this time Google was catching up to a few Apple features. But so so what's coming in uh, so in the near term stuff, what's coming in Android that um uh, you know that that is either catch up or that excites you, you're like, Oh, this is something that's uh, that I've really been looking for. Like I know I know now on tap, for instance, seems like an amazing integration that we don't see yeah. in iOS, for instance. A lot of the stuff that I'm really looking forward to are the under the hood things. So like, for instance, the granular permission settings for apps. Yep. So like if a, if a weird app is like, hey, can I have access to your contacts list? And you're like, why? Why do you need to know <laughs> Susie's phone number? Like that has nothing to do with this game. I'd like your location um, all the time, please. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Yeah. It sounds uh, like, like Android's going to kind of go the iOS direction with that. So before yeah. when you installed an Android app for, for our listeners, um, it would ask you for all the permissions ahead of time. And everyone would just say, sure, because that's what you do when you install an app on Android. You install the app, you give it permissions and then you get to use it it was kind of but freaky like people would complain like yeah. uber would ask for like 17 different like we want to do this and like and they're like no no we're not actually using that but if we don't ask we can't use it was the so people stopped thing. reading them it's like when you click agree on a license agreement with software like people stopped looking at it because it was just yeah it was they'd ask you for every permission under the sun like any function in the app that you might ever use like that had a permission attached to it they would get it all up front so now they're going to adopt the ios model where you use the app and it asks for 
each permission kind of as it comes up. So if you're going to use an app to share a photo, then it'll ask you if you can if it can um, access your photos. And if you want to add friends to something, it'll then it'll ask you for permission to look at your contacts list. So that is you know that's going to make the Android experience better. And if you deny it, then it just doesn't work, which is is another thing. It's like I do not want you to use my microphone right now. Please stop asking me. <laughs> Please stop asking me. And there'll be a stop. central place for you to go and see what apps have what permissions and change them. So if you accidentally press like, no, you can't look at my location in an app that really needs your location, you'll be able to go and undo that. So so that's good. Yeah, I saw uh, the Android Pay thing was interesting because not that, uh, and that was widely anticipated, a lot of the the details of that and some announced ahead of time. But uh, I know Anil Dash was tweeting, he's like, how does, I don't, and, he, and he criticizes Apple for the same thing when they do. It's like, how does Google make the Android Pay announcement as if Apple Pay doesn't exist? Like as if they're in a <laughs> special reality in which they're trying to extol the virtues of something that's actually already stolen the thunder. Like not that they're playing catch up, but more like, because they pioneered um, the things that are now being embedded into, into Android Play. But it was a kind of a funny tone. I know this is an Apple podcast we're talking about here, but I just want to bring the the perspective that um, Google is not so much competing with Apple as yeah. they are with Samsung. Yeah. Oh, uh, Samsung Pay really threw a wrench into everything because they just went out and bought Loop Pay, yeah. which which uh, we've actually tested, and I mean the thing works phenomenally because you don't technically need NFC. I don't know how it's going to work on the Samsung phones yet. It's not live until this summer. Well, the loop pay is um, the, that's a magnetic induction coil yeah. thing, right? Cause they're, and they're not, but I, I don't know how it's going to work on the galaxy S6s. Right, so we, we don't know. Cause yet. I think that in, uh, Google said something about, it. I think that they say 700,000 locations will accept Android pay or was that Apple somewhere in that range? Like, I, and there's something like, uh, I looked up the, I got the details, something like eight to 9 million retail locations, accept credit cards in the U S and obviously a much larger number worldwide. So less than 10 percent will accept Android Pay or Apple Pay, but Samsung with the loop thing, it should get that number up to like like 90% or 95%. Because you can use it at like your local bodega that has a little AT, you know, a little yeah, uh, credit card that takes machine. credit cards, it should work. Yeah, there's a few things like I think some they're concerned like uh, uh, service stations that the stripey thing may be set up in such a way that the magnetic induction won't work, but like any machine, any of the, sl the ones you slide, uh, swipe through in a store um, are supposed to, but yeah, that was so, you know, I forget about that because Samsung, and then I see this story, I think you pointed me to, we won't, we won't mention the source because we don't like them so much, but uh, <laughs> you pointed me to a story in which there was this, you know, oh, Samsung's going down. So is there like this new press narrative instead of the Apple is failing? Is it Google and Samsung are mutually failing? Is that the new, <laughs> the new narrative? I certainly hope not because I feel like Samsung and Google are kind of pretty different in a lot of ways. I, I feel like Google's trying to do a lot to differentiate itself from the OEMs that are just kind of let's take Android and do whatever we want with it, you know, and Google's like, well, that's not what we meant, but we're going to go do these things anyway. Um, I think there's a bit of a struggle just on Google's part to try and rein in all what the OEMs are doing. And I think, I also think that they sort of got together in a conference table one day and were like, okay, guys, here's who we're competing with here. Like the nerds love us. So yay, we still have that like subset of users, but we need to get some of like the Apple people and like the general Samsung using folk to really pay attention to us again. So 
let's just call Google Wallet Android Pay. Right, right. That's, well, that's going to work. And then Google well, Wallet Google gets... Google sticking around, though. That's not going to confuse anybody. I know. It's it's so freaking confusing. And it it's just like, really, guys, come on. This is not helping. It's Well, <laughs> yeah. The, but, so I wanted to ask you about um, also about uh, things that were announced at the keynote that you're, uh, that you're excited about that are that, that Apple should steal. Like, for instance, uh, you know, the offline map, like what we talked about now on tap, I mentioned that earlier, uh, offline maps and customized Play Store. I know you had things to talk about uh, with each of those. And these are all things that Apple doesn't really do in the same way or doesn't offer the kind of degree of availability. Customized Play Store would be huge. This is the consumer-friendly stuff that, that got announced that's, that's going to be exciting for, for the common you know, the common tech user, but uh, it just, it needs to be advertised. Yeah, what's the Play Store situation? Because I know, I mean, the App Store is kind of a mess with kids. It's a mess with kids and academic institutions. And uh, it's just, they, they still have not figured out that families exist and we need to have, <laughs> Apple's getting there. I think they recognize families exist, but I think they're still on the road there. So what's Google going to offer with um, with parental controls and, and customization? I'm fascinated by what they're going to do there. Apple totally needs to, to copy this. Um, so what they're doing is the Play Store is going to look dif- it, it looks different for for different people. So and it's based on you know you and what you shop for. So you know when you open Netflix, like Netflix will look different for you based on you know than it will for Flow because you guys watch different stuff and it tries to show you the stuff it thinks you'll like. Um, Apple doesn't do that with the App Store at all. Like the front page of the App Store looks the same for everyone. So they're going to personalize the Play Store for each customer and try to surface the apps that it thinks that you want based on your history, what apps that you've bought, what Ooh. apps that you use. So that's brilliant. Like if you're you know, an athlete, it's going to show you the cool new fitness apps and you won't have to go digging around to find to discover new stuff that you might like. And then they're also doing a badge on family-friendly apps and some more family kind of filters. You can filter by age group and by character if you're looking for stuff for your kids. They will mark apps that don't have advertising. They will mark apps that don't have in-app purchases. And they're also integrating some third-party ratings. So the App Store, the iOS App Store, has age ratings on everything, but those are submitted by the developers. And um, the Play Store is pulling in ratings from independent rating agencies. Like the the um, so if you buy like console games for your kids and they're like everyone or un- age seven or whatever those are, I'm blanking on all of them now. T for teen and E for everyone, M for mature. There's going to be that kind of rating system integrated into the Google Play Store. So the idea is that parents will be able to find appropriate stuff for their kids. Um, but even people without kids, I think that that personalized Play Store is genius and Apple needs to do that yesterday. It's awesome. I love it. Um, but it, it does skew like my TV choice is a bit too much toward reality TV. <laughs> it knows. Sometimes I want to watch a drama, you know, like, come on, guys. You're like, I'm not as lowbrow as you think I am. <laughs> oh, you know, speaking of lowbrow, we should take a break and thank our last sponsor before we finish up with uh, with the Google I.O. conference. Susie, you have you have some highbrow thoughts to share. 
I do. Um, so we'd like to thank our third sponsor today. It's The Great Courses. Um, we've been talking about The Great Courses for a few weeks now, and we've been focusing on a investing course that they sent me, but that's not all that they can teach you. The next course that they sent me is called Fundamentals of Photography. And I mean, you, me, and everyone, we're taking thousands of photos now. We're posting them on social media networks. I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of them are bad. So, but the great courses can help with fundamentals of photography. It's taught by a professional photographer and National Geographic fellow, Joel Satori. Um, I've been watching it. It's a really great learning experience. You can learn all about your camera settings. It can sort of tell you what professional photographers would do in um, different situations for lighting and framing and co composition. You'll get really good tips. And it gives you little homework activities, little interactive um, exercises that you can try and, you know, really up your skills. So it's a great course. I've been having a lot of fun with it. Um, the Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, and they have over 500 courses in just a huge range of subjects, science, math, history, art, music, all the stuff that you've always wanted to learn, but you didn't get to in college. You don't, you know, want to go check out a bunch of textbooks from the library. This is a great interactive way to, to learn it at your own pace. You can download the courses. You can stream them into the apps. You can order them on DVDs or CDs if you want to just listen to them on your commute. Um, and you there's tons to learn, so you should definitely check it out. There's a limited time offer for Macworld listeners. They're offering eight of their best-selling courses, including the Fundamentals of Photography. Those are at up to 80% off the original price. So to get take advantage of that awesome offer, you would go to thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. That's thegreatcourses, all spelled out, dot com slash Macworld. So go check it out, and we thank The Great Courses for sponsoring the podcast. So, uh, Flo, I, I'm um, <clears throat> the offline maps feature is an interesting thing. I was just reading this tutorial the other day that told me how in the iOS version of Google Maps, uh, how you could actually cache stuff offline, but it was a little bit of an elaborate process. Uh, Google seems to want to make offline map caching um, substantially easier. And, and will this be an Android-only feature? Oh, my gosh. I actually am not sure. I don't think it will be. Um, you know, I'm actually confused about this particular announcement because you actually did have offline maps right. available before Google I.O. Um, I, when I went to Berlin a couple years ago, I downloaded my maps offline and used it that way. Uh, but I think this is more cohesive because now they offer like turn by turn directions and you have like all the functionality you would with data, mm -hmm. but offline. Oh, I see. So th that's the thing. So yeah. it was the turn by turn. So you could get, um, you could cache pictures of a map, but you couldn't say, you know, if you're suddenly out of coverage area, even though you had the map data, you wouldn't be able to have it tell you how to get somewhere. You'd have to then like yeah. be scrolling through and Oh, that's, but see, that seems highly useful to me. Which is so embarrassing for me because I never learned how to use a map. <laughs> now I can no, no longer get around without oh having somebody tell me. But is this an age? Is this an age difference? I can't tell. It's like uh, I mean, I it's I've traveled. I actually gotten so bad that I forget that maps exist. Like I just use directions and let it talk to me. But uh, my wife. Yeah, and I, I resisted turn by turn forever because I've always been a map geek. Like we used to buy the Rand McNally Atlas every year and have it in the back seat of the car, and I would just look at it until I made myself car sick reading the atlas in the car. So. <laughs> 
So I was like, turn by turn, get off my lawn, like just look at the map and figure out where you're going. So, but yeah, of course now I use turn by turn because it's way more convenient. But um, yeah, it's kind of funny how we used to be able to remember people's phone numbers and, and, and read a map. And now like those skills are just, you know, like, like churning butter. Well, and this, and this feature isn't um, really for, so one thing to know is that this feature isn't so much for consumers like you and I, it's a lot more for the Android One program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was announced in the part of the keynote where they were talking about, you know, the next billion people they're trying to get online. So is this for like people in India, in like small little villages, and they have maps to kind of like help them, you know. Yeah. Navigate. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think that's the next billion is going to be an incredible thing. So every time I read about how, like, the slowest uh, amount of data available to people in remote villages who are, you know, involved in some kind of commerce, farming, or other sorts of trade, like, them being able to get up-to-date pricing has a dramatic effect on their life because they can compete or they can, um, they, they're not getting cheated and they are more effective in the, in even the local and the global economy. You're like, wow. So having, like... 3G or 2G service that's uh, affordable and um, so maps again too it's like if that's not something where they have to carry on huge pieces of paper but they have offline mapping and directions that could improve their efficiency everything is more complicated when you're outside of a robust uh, infrastructure that we have in some of the developing world, even as it falls apart. Now, now, uh, now on tap, I, uh, I've heard a bit about this, and uh, it seems like this is going to be a big step ahead of, of Google Now and Siri and some of the other uh, Cortana, that this is pushing forward to um, uh, uh, beyond the like, hey, answer a question for me or do some processing. Um, what, what's now on tap going to deliver that these others don't? Uh, it just brings you more contextual information, which I realize is, is not like the most descriptive way to, you know, it but it's it's just more context so like when you're reading an email and your friends like hey we're having a birthday party for so and so on this day at this restaurant now on tap will immediately just pop up a little notification at the bottom with like a yelp link to the restaurant and then you just tap on it and then it takes you to the yelp app and you can like make a reservation for however many people you need to be there it's so it's just it's it's basically eliminating how much tapping you need to do. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So it's going to be yeah. I mean, I've seen this uh, Fantastical. Um, I've been using this uh, the version two for the Mac, and uh, there's a iOS version as well. And uh, it does it doesn't do natural language processing so much as it just you know you can type in it does some of that. It doesn't do the machine learning that Google's doing, which you know is based on bazillions of pieces of information gathered and trained. But you can just the fact that you could say like. Uh, lunch with Joe Bob on Thursday at two or lunch at two or set an alarm for whatever, just not having to go through like, Hey, on this date at this time, click this button, check, chop, blah, boop, bop. You know, it, it, the, the simplicity of it means that it becomes invisible. Um, and you forget about it. So I, I like that. That's well, be the on tap part is that it comes up as you are doing the thing, mm-hmm. because currently Google now will like aggregate that information and, and, like I'll go over to my Google Now panel in on my Android phone and it'll be like, hey, you had this email that said that you guys are getting together for board games. Do you want to remind you that you're getting together for board games? And then I'll be like, yes or no. Mm-hmm. But now it just does it as you are reading the email. Now it just like pops it up. It's not, you know. Yeah, and it can get context. It can get t- context and information from more apps. So if mm. you're using the internet, like Google already kind of indexes the whole web, right? So if you go to your web browser and you ask, 
it you know when when is princess charlotte's birthday it it'll just tell you you know it doesn't send you to a web page anymore because it has the whole web kind of indexed and it can find that information from the context that it has but on your phone a lot of the things you use are apps so now on tap is sort of a way for google to index those information that you're seeing in those apps and have that ready as as quickly available context. So one of the demos on stage was um, they were using a chat app. I think it was, I don't remember which one it was. It doesn't even really matter. So you're using a chat app like WhatsApp or something that's not even a Google app. And you're chatting with your husband and he says, okay, we're going to this restaurant tonight. And also I forgot to pick up the dry cleaning. Can you do it? And then, yeah, you press that Google Now home button and the things that pop up um, are taking into a context things that are in that app. Like it'll actually look at the conversation and say, okay, do you need to know more about the restaurant? Do you need directions? Do you need open table reservations? Do you want to look at the Yelp review? And do you need a reminder to go pick up the dry cleaning? And it can get all that from what you were looking at in the app. So that's going to be really great. Like Google Now is already kind of the pride and joy of Android. I, I, I love Google Now on Android. It's my favorite thing about Android. And it's this it's you, know, you can kind of use it in the Google app on iOS, but it's super sad compared to how awesome it is on Android. Um, but yeah, and there was a rumor that Apple was going to do this, uh, what were they calling it, proximity or some kind of thing. Like Apple mm. wants to sort of build some of that um, anticipatory thing in there. So like Siri would give you information about your next appointment or something you were searching for before you have to ask for it. Um, but this this is going to leapfrog whatever Apple's working on. Like Google now is not going to stand still and they're going to keep making it better. So um, if Apple comes out with, with, with some kind of thing where, you know, Siri anticipates your, your needs before you ask for them, um, Google has already kind of, you know, leapfrogged that just by letting that work inside all the different apps. I feel like this is one of Google's advantages is machine learning is um, an incredible thing. I know Apple's engaged in it as well, but it's where you, you're you using neural nets to uh, – well, without getting too deep into it, using – it allows sort of a fuzziness. Is that instead of having a binary choice, a yes, no, you can uh, create uh, rich decision trees that are triggered by combinations of things. So you can – and then you train uh, these systems on real data. And so the amount of real data you have with real outcomes helps you anticipate and sort of and sort of match against future inputs that uh, that aren't the same. So it, it lets you look at context, and because Google's analyzed some uh, hundreds of billions of pieces of of context, they can use those rules without reanalyzing. They're not just like looking it up in a chart. They can say, okay, how closely does this match? Does this hit our threshold? Yes, then that probably means this, and so forth. There's a lot. Almost, in, it's almost an inference where um, I think Apple has a smaller corpus. They have less data like that that they collect, and so it doesn't allow them natively to provide that same thing. I think that's going to be one of the big gaps. The search engine part, Google Voice, uh, Google Now, like all the things that Google is doing in that realm that combine are some orders of magnitude above what Apple uh, what Apple can do and what it wants to do. And, um, and I think we're seeing it in this, certainly in this one aspect. So I love competition too. It's like, I hope this spurs Apple to have to work harder on Siri, which still remains, it's better. Oh my gosh, is it better? But wow. It's a lot it's, better than it used to be. Yeah, but it still feels very, I don't know, it's just it's haphazard and erratic and it drops into the web much more than I feel like it should based on, on what it should be able to do. Yeah, it's aiming for natural, but it's still not totally natural. Like if you can ask for things one way and get them and you can ask for things another way 
and not get them. And it's just, it's such a tiny, you know, tweak that you have to make to how you ask to get the answer that you like. So they're getting closer. But yeah, Google is is just blazing ahead. Hey, let's let's close out with uh, something I know that uh, a number of people are calling attention to, especially after Apple's recent uh, keynote, in which it felt like it was a bunch of white guys, a bunch of older white guys on stage again. Uh, where you know the world is diverse, like we're, you know the there's um, not just the you know the percentage of women in the world versus men; it's roughly fifty fifty. But just the fact that all these companies are really marketing uh, worldwide and trying to reach audiences that are culturally diverse, that are ethnically diverse, their needs are different, they're socioeconomically diverse, and sort of putting a category that's a very small minority of the world's population, <laughs> when you break it down on stage, sends a signal. Um, Flo, it seems like you were impressed with uh, with the, the sort of, um, let's say, uh, non-announced uh, diversity on stage. Would that make you... You mean my tweets didn't give it away? <laughs> <laughs> I had I had uh, one of my friends, uh, Michael Fisher, pocket now. He was like tweeting, was like, "Okay, quote from Flo in three, two, every time a woman would come on stage," because it it, it made me so happy. They and did a great job. Also, they did, but the thing is, um, it's I don't I don't mean to sound like a Google lover here, even though obviously this is what I cover for a living, but that's just the landscape of. The Google, you know, Google employees. It's very multicultural. It's very like inclusive. There are really a lot of different people on campus, and that's not to say that that's not the case at other places. But but you wouldn't be able to see that, like looking at their keynotes, you know. Right. Who who's in executive positions? Who they, you know, even people they invite from other companies to appear. It sends them. I mean, it's trying to say, uh, believing that having all people from one ethnicity and gender sends no message is a message, even if they are like, well, no, it's just the. the those are the people on the team. It's like, well, no, you don't have to. Like every conference doesn't have to be ninety or one hundred percent older white guys, too. And uh, same thing here. Yeah, it is just. It was so good. Like both both keynotes, or I should say, the keynote and the ATAP session the next day, and it was just good to see. And also, like attendance, there were more women um, this year at I/O than there were in the last two years. I think. Uh, Did you have to wait in line for the bathroom at any point? I did. Oh, oh wow. Did. That's the mark. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. Changing yeah. the world. Especially um, after... But this year, we had uh, the women in, in tech. So there were, uh, the night before Google I.O., they do this every year, actually. There were eight, I think there were eight different dinners for women in tech. I was actually invited to one, and I didn't go, which, <laughs> shame on me. I should have gone. Um, but they also had, like... This has just made me happy. But in the bathrooms, they had like dry shampoo and lotion and bottles <laughs> and like all things for women. And then, you know, my uh, John Phillips, my boss, our editor in chief, went and I was like, John, what do they have in the men's bathrooms? He says, nothing. <laughs> nothing in there. Sandpaper and so, rocks. That's all we get. No, they did have floss. They put floss in the men's bathroom. Which is very nice. Not a collection of so. colognes and aftershaves. Uh, awesome. No, but I think it's it's you know, it's the the question is like at some point in the future like you know there's an there's this issue about effort being made and I think the diversity reports that um, Silicon Valley firms are putting out now and others that are laying bare like how you know lack of diversity in uh, in in hiring and especially in but also in management like it's changing because lights being shown on it and opportunities are being made available and some of the patterns are being broken down i think it's great for google to uh and i think microsoft's actually made some strides this direction as well to say like look you know it's not just role models it's more like this is who our audience is we're showing putting people on stage that match our global 
uh, audience of, of people that we're selling to or trying to encourage to come work for us. This is, this is what you see on stage is what the world is, not all the same kind of person. That is a really good point about the, I, we want to encourage, you know, these type of people to come work for us. Yeah. You know, I just want to like, that's, that's sort of, uh, sorry to delve into this in the last like minutes of this podcast, but that's sort of like my issue with, with Apple as a company is it just feels like there's no place for me. Uh, the person that I am and the way that I am, it just feels like I don't fit in with the Apple culture. And, you know, and that's kind of why I've gravitated toward covering Android as a, as a tech journalist, because I just, I feel like I belong more here, not to get all like existential here, but that's, that's just the way I feel. Um, no, I think Apple's I just less... feel like I belong at Google IO. Like I was around a bunch of nerds and we were all freaking out about the same stuff. And it didn't matter that I was a chick. Like I just, I was there almost barfing from Google cardboard, like everybody else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think that's the thing is it's just the, it's the Apple is not as overt as some Silicon Valley companies about, you know, pushing a culture that is exclusive, but they're doing it, you know, it happens implicitly and, and it feels like something that, uh, it stands out. It highlights when you're like, okay, Apple, your global audience is the same as Google. And this is what you're, this is how you're approaching it. This is where you're giving people the position and, and some of the features we've talked a lot about like family sharing and Apple's approach to like what a family is <laughs> and like, do they really, it's still like, is it all like single young guys it's not i know it's not but it sometimes feels like it because they don't get the i don't get the sense of them eating their dog food about what families actually want to do with that stuff and it's not just licensing it's sort of a approach my wife was getting her uh, her got her folks set up with iphones a few months ago and been gradually getting them to use them and you know we just set up find my friends so we can spot i'll see each other on it and um and uh, it was, it was just this funny thing of like she said, should we turn on family sharing? I said, oh God, no, don't do that. Don't do that. That's the worst thing. She's like, but it says family sharing. I'm like, no, no. She's like, all right, I trust you. But no wow. one knows what will happen. Well, I have to say that everything that happened at Google I/O, like in the last two years or so, everything that's being announced, it has a lot to do with just who's running the Android and Chrome divisions. Um, I I really like Sundar Pichai as a person. Me too. Um, he just. I, you know, he's just, I like him because he's just a, a regular dude with just, you know, the whole Android one thing was his platform, his way of being like, I want to give back to where my family is from. Mm -hmm. So I want to like bring, I want to bring this technology in emerging markets, like where my family is from and just seeing that, I don't know, it's just, it's relatable and it's just nice to have somebody like that, you know, running Google stuff. <laughs> Well, I'd say, you know, not to, I, I don't want to bring in too much of your family background, but I realize like, you know, your family's from Romania, you have relatives there yeah. and Romania is technically a developed world. It's in, you know, it's in Europe, but it's yes. also, it's still recovering from decades of, of communist rule and centralized economy and so forth. And now it's recovering from a weak EU government, but anyway, we won't care. <laughs> <laughs> but right, you know, we've got hung, you know, Hungary, you've got plenty of places in Europe and then that are, that are ostensibly developed world, but still have a you know, poverty and are still working working on, on gearing themselves up. And, you know, then you get further into India, you get into rural China, you get into uh, Africa. And um, there's all these markets that are, that are probably 80 to 90 something percent of what's out there. And that's, those are the, yep. that's the great challenge. Well, uh, 
this this has been great. Thank you for bringing your perspective, Flo, on the Android world to the Macworld podcast. Thank you guys for letting me come over and rant away on your podcast. It's, ex- <laughs> it's exciting. Next week we'll be back to the you know the WWDC and we'll be talking about a bunch of white guys on stage again, probably. But you know they've got <laughs> they got things to say too, I suppose. Uh, so thanks, Flo Ion. Thanks for a, a staff writer at Greenbot. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, guys. Susie, great to talk to you again, as always. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to Casper, Igloo, and the Great Courses, who have been our sponsors this week. This has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 459, for June 3rd, 2015. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with WWDC and more news.